All right, we're live. I think we're live. Yeah, we're live. Okay. Yay. Yay. <laughs> Welcome to First Impressions, the podcast where we talk about our love for Jane Austen, give all the middle fingers to the haters. <laughs> all the haters, the middle fingers. I'm Kristen. I'm here with Maggie, as always. Hello. Hello. We are delighted to be joining you for the second episode talking about what really matters in Jane Austen. So have you haven't gotten the book? of a 20 part series. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I was just about to say, if you haven't gotten the book yet, go out and get it from the library or buy it. So John Mullen doesn't get mad at us for copyright infringement, for telling you absolutely everything the book says. <laughs> buy it so, from, buy it from your nearest independent bookseller. That's right. Yeah. So, it, I mean, I just, we just can't stop talking about it. That's the reason we're doing another episode. Um, hopefully it's inducing a lot of people to get really interested in it. Cause I think there are like 20, cha- yeah, 20 chapters in full, 20 crucial puzzles solved. And we've only talked about two topics so far, sex and death in our previous episode. And today we're going to tackle two more chapters. And then I think we'll probably be done. Cause I really don't but want him to be mad at us. Kristen, who's going to solve the other 16 essential puzzles. <laughs> John Mullen has already solved them oh, available from a bookseller near you. <laughs> Basically see, this works out really well for us. Cause we just let him do all the hard work mm-hmm. and then we just read his book and talk Tell about it. Says, and sound really smart. Good. And we're like, you're so brilliant. Yeah. Kristen, are you drinking wine? I'm drinking wine. I um, discovered that Boise contains a store called the uh, Bargain Grocery Basement Outlet or some insane. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we went there. And That's our friend, so Boise. <laughs> our friends tipped us off that they get all the overstock from California wineries who haven't been able to sell all their wine. Oh, my God. So, I know. It's all this stuff from Napa and Sonoma that hasn't sold. And so and, and you can get a bottle for like $5. And they normally they like retail for 15 And so I am having mystified soft lips. <laughs> The soft red blend from Mystified. It's a 2016 California. Holy shit! I'll be right there. And now you have to cut in a sound of like a door slam, like my legs running and then like door slamming, <laughs> and a car screeching out. Like I'm driving immediately to Boise. Yeah, there is. It's a shade. I think it's like this one grocery. Yeah, and so you can't get. I mean, it's like. Priceline, right? You go there and you have no idea what produce they'll have. They have random. I mean, I mean, you're not a wine connoisseur. I'm not a wine connoisseur. I'm like, is this a ten dollar bottle oh, of really good right. wine? That's okay, it. is it red or white? Yes, I like um, both of them. I drink four dollar wine from Aldi, Kristen. Like, I'm not going to be <laughs> snobby. I, I, I meant like the entire store, though. Like, you never know. It's not like a normal grocery store where you go and they always have bananas. It's yeah, like they have fun. whatever overflow. It's like going to Ross, dress for less, right? They have like. <laughs> <laughs> one 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 version of one dress and it's only in one size and if it fits you great if not you're screwed you know like so but it's really fun to go there because they have a lot of cool stuff it sounds a lot more fun to do that kind of shopping for wine than it does for dresses when you can yeah. <laughs> yes and then you're yeah, just depressed to- and then you need the wine well, yes and i don't even know if the, our australian canadian new zealand great britain etc friends um I'm like Howard Dean now. I'm like shouting out the names of states and I realize I can't do all 50. But you know who you are. Come to listeners, non-US listeners. I don't know if they even know Ross, but you know, it's a, it's a clothing store. You get it. Anyway. I'm sure they can kick it up by context. Mm-hmm. Um, so they came up with a new tagline for the podcast, 
which is a riff on the, the the motto of Austin, Texas, that we should call it Keep Austin Weird. Oh. And it'll be Austin with an E. Get it? <laughs> Get it? Because <laughs> it's Jane Austen. I love it. I love it. Yes. Keep Austin out of the mainstream. And I think we're the only ones making Austin weird. <laughs> I think we're just weird. <laughs> we're make Austin weird, not keep Austin weird. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm fucking delightful. <laughs> I would never contradict you. Maggie, by the way, has been drinking all day. She has been touring wineries. I know, but I sobered up. I'm actually sober now. So Bay and I went out earlier and we looked at a winery in Leesburg, Virginia as a possible wedding venue. Um, and so, of course, we had to have a tasting because if we're going to have a wedding at a at a winery, you got to make sure the wine is good. Yeah. And the wine was very good. Yeah. She texts me and she's like, I've been drinking literally all day. Just, this is a warning. <laughs> yes. But now I have sobered up. So and now I'm I, getting drunk. Yeah. I will be the voice of uh, sobriety. Sobriety here. <laughs> so hold on to your hats. <laughs> all right, Kristen, what are we talking about tonight? Tonight we have two chapters that we're going to tackle. The first is about sisters. The title of the chapter is really do sisters sleep together? Which is an interesting question. But actually the chapter goes much deeper and touch, touches on something that I've always felt really strongly connected to in all of the novels, or at least aware of, which is sisterly relationships and their characters within all of the novels. Um, because we know, of course, that Austin and her sister Cassandra were incredibly close. And obviously that influence bled into all the novels in different ways. And then the second chapter we're going to talk about is what games did the characters play, which is actually also an examination of how Austin used the games, used these games as a novelist to show the readers at the time what was going on because they could have, they were all familiar with the games and they, they would have known how many players and, you know, how, how it would have looked and how, how the gameplay would have been and seemed, but also as a novelist to separate some characters while grouping others and what kind of games were difficult, what kind of games were easier on the brain, and how that weaves into the storylines and, and characters' attitudes toward games as well. So anyway, I have this, the chapter on games is covered in notes, and it talks about one of my favorite parts in Mansfield Park that we didn't really talk about in our three two-hour-long Mansfield Park <laughs> episodes. We talk about literally every scene in the book more or less, except for um, a couple. And this this scene where they're all together playing speculation is one of the triumphs, I think, of Mansfield Park as a novel. It's a fantastic scene. And he goes really in depth into that scene in this chapter. So those are our two topics. Do we want to get started talking about sisters? Sister. <laughs> I knew you were going to sing it. <laughs> there were never such devoted sisters. Never had to have a chaperone, no, sir. I'm here to keep my eye on her. (laughs) (laughs) So basically, you know, every time you say sisters, I'm running that song. That is a song from the classic movie musical, White Christmas, starring Bing Crosby, Danny Kaye, Rosemary Clooney, and Vera. I can't remember her name, but it's amazing. Well, Um, I'd never seen it until six months ago at at Christmas time. When I made you watch it? No, no. It was totally in a different context. But yeah, and I had never seen it. So now I understand the reference. 
Okay. Um, and it was delightful. But anyway, so this chapter starts out, do sisters sleep together? And I really love how Mullen um, introduces the chapter because this issue came up, I guess, around 1995 when Terry Castle of Stanford wrote a sort of a, a review or um, a letter about the new issue of Deirdre Le Fay's uh, Jane Austen's letters. So Deirdre Le Fay being the person who edited all the letters and they published them in the London Review of Books. And apparently <laughs> the London Review of Books put this very cheeky question, was Jane Austen gay? Right on its cover, because they know uh, how to sell us a couple of copies. But right. the real question was, did the two sisters, did Jane and Cassandra, sleep in the same bed? Which even if they did, doesn't make them gay. This is but- such a, I think this is such a 20th, 21st century. Okay, this is such a rich people question. This is such a first world rich people question, right? Because we live in a society where we live, what is the norm in this country is that children have their own room. That was not the case. And that is still not the case for most of the world, I would say. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. And so this idea like oh, two women sleeping together in the same bed, like titter behind your hands, like that's just how it was. It was. And um, it's, it's, you know, in the case of Jane and Cassandra, actually – Evidence came to light that their parents bought two single beds for their room, but they were still sharing a room as many siblings do. And we can all assume and agree that many late night conversations were had between Jane and and Cassandra about what was going on in their lives, private confidences. I mean, we know they were so close. If you read actually the letter that Cassandra wrote upon Jane's death, it can make me cry every time because her her loss and her grief are just so immediate and so incredibly deep. Uh, But anyway, they were close their whole lives. And um, yeah. And so what we're meant to, to take away from that in this chapter is that yes, sisters did have confidences. Yes. The confidences often happened behind closed doors and their bedroom was a natural place for that. And when you take a look at Jane and Elizabeth, they have many private conversations over the course of pride and prejudice. And they're always withdrawing, to their room. And I always assumed that Jane and Elizabeth had the kind of relationship that Jane and Cassandra did in real mm-hmm. life where they could, they wanted to have private conversations about what was really going on with them. Or as our author points out, it was their room or the shrubbery. Huh. <laughs> right. Yeah. They, they would often have to seek privacy in the shrubs <laughs> around <laughs> Longbourn. Yes. These rooms were like private sanctuaries. Mm-hmm. And another t- pair of sisters that often had confidences or not in their own room were Eleanor and Marianne, right? Ang Lee actually imagines, um, or whoever decided to, to include this scene in the Sense and Sensibility adaptation in 1996, Ang Lee, you remember that there's one sort of interstitial scene showing Eleanor- them- your feet are cold. Yes, <laughs> yes. Where where they Eleanor gets into bed with Marianne? She says, "Your feet are cold," which is a, another way to express how selfish Marianne is. That Eleanor right. is just just <laughs> get out of bed, bed and on socks. Get back into bed. Fine, fine, fine. And how much Eleanor loves her that she doesn't just say, "Deal with it." <laughs> or stick up, stick up <laughs> under her butt, which yeah. is what I would have done. I'd be like, "Oh, I know the solution <laughs> to this problem." Right, <laughs> but. Throughout what I always what always struck me when I was reading Austin 
is how every main character has either a deep sisterly relationship or lacks one and develops one in the course of the story. Jane and Elizabeth, of course, are close. When you get to Sense and Sensibility, actually the entire plot of Sense and Sensibility is a plot of sisterly alienation. And let me tell you something that Mullen points out, and it is so freaking brilliant, that um, when we first meet Eleanor and Marianne, it's early on in the book. They're talking about Edward Ferrer's and Eleanor's feelings about Edward. And we get Marianne's perspective. Marianne smiles within herself when Eleanor says that Edward has a taste for drawing, because Marianne knows it's just Eleanor's love for Edward that's making her say this. And then later in the same conversation, Eleanor, we get her perspective where it says Eleanor was sorry for the warmth she had been betrayed into in speaking of him and speaking of Edward. Now, this is an early conversation between these two sisters where we get both viewpoints. Later in the novel, we get only Eleanor's perspective about all their conversations. We are shut out of what Marianne is thinking and feeling. And that echoes the sisterly alienation that has happened it's the whole mystery. I mean, we can't know what Marianne is thinking because it's the mystery of the novel. Are they engaged? What's going on with Marianne? But it's a, a symptom of that larger plot point that the sisterly alienation is the really, really painful plot point that we experience along with Eleanor is being just sort of divorced from someone you love so much. And it adds to Eleanor's isolation. Yes, and adds to and her, her isolation. feeling where she cannot speak of her feelings to anyone, not even Marianne. Absolutely. So she's no longer having this other voice sort of joining with her in her concerns. What I thought was really interesting was how he points out that Eleanor and Marianne really only have, what is like four or five close private conversations? Yes. In the novel compared to Lizzie and Jane who have something like 11 or 12. So it really shows you the, like, despite the fact that we see Sense and Sense, I mean, Sense and Sensibility, it's the two of them in the title. They still only interact privately very few times compared to the strong relationship of the sisters in Pride and Prejudice. Even when the two sisters are in their bedroom together, that confidence has been cut off as, Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's many scenes where, or at least one in the book, where Eleanor and Marianne are in the bedroom and Eleanor is saying, tell me what's going on. And Marianne is saying, don't ask me. Do not ask me questions. Yes. And yes. And so there are many conversations that try to get started in the the bedroom and get stopped by Marianne and, and her estrangement. And then when Marianne does get the letter, where is she like sobbing and screaming on her bed? And Eleanor has to go and be there with her and like, you know, control her physically, you know, such grief shocking as it was to witness must run its course, et cetera, et cetera. So the other thing that is not really talked about in the sisters chapter, but that always struck me, I don't think it's talked about, I just read it earlier and I didn't see anything about it, but you know, I'm slat my wrist if I'm wrong. But um, in, Kath- in North Mirror Abbey, Catherine Moreland, right? She has many sisters, but you know, the- Sarah or Sally or whoever, mm-hmm. it, it's not, they're not much talked about being together. What happens in North Mirror Abbey is that Catherine Moreland forms a sort of sisterhood with Isabella Thorpe, right? They're so close. They shut shut themselves up together to read novels. They call themselves by their Christian names, et cetera. And that is a false sisterhood that is broken apart. And when it is, we're, as the reader, 
we're so happy to know that Eleanor Tilney is still Kath- is now Catherine Moreland's new friend is coming into mm-hmm. or it's already in Catherine Moreland's life to t- stand it to t- step in and take that role because the friendship between Catherine and Eleanor to me it always felt weird but that friendship is given almost equal weight and importance as a relationship with Catherine's relationship with Henry Tilney so we're not only watching Henry Tilney fall in love with Catherine but we're we're watching Catherine develop a sisterly relationship with Eleanor and we're rooting for that just as much i mean i think Austin saw that as an essential part of any life is having a deep, a, a close, close female friend, because that's what she had. And I'm sure she couldn't imagine life without it. He does mention it mostly in the context of talking about how Catherine and Sarah, their paths have diverged, where, for example, when Henry Tilney comes to visit and he's, oh, you know, I see Mr. Allen's, would you walk me over there? And Sarah's like, why do you need someone to walk you over there? It's right there. <laughs> yes. And it's like, she still hasn't progressed to the point of being able to notice what's going on, that her sister has become, is in love, has become a woman. I do, when we're talking about um, whether they slept in the same room, I did really love, and I've always remembered how the Northanger Abbey movie showed with like six they showed specifically like six kids sleeping in one room and I don't think they go this far but I always remember movies where like a parent would open a drawer and like put the baby in the <laughs> because that was like literally the only room there was yeah yeah they just was, there just wasn't space yeah it was and it would have been totally normal for, for people to share beds. I think at some point, maybe it's not the same era, but when travelers were traveling and they come to an inn, they would just yeah, stay you would in just sleep with bed. a stranger. Yeah, with everybody else. Isn't that the bedrock of modern fan fiction, right? Yeah. They go well, to an inn, there's, there's only one people, bed. Yeah, three people can <laughs> sleep in this bed and you're going to be rooming with these other weirdos. So, yes. Yes. You know, and you all have bed bugs. So. One of the things I felt really strongly really early on when I was reading Persuasion, at, you know, as a younger woman, having been familiar with the rest of Austin for a while. One of the things that makes that novel feel so desolate and Mm -hmm. so lonely and so desperate is that Anne has no sisterly affection between either her and Elizabeth, her oldest sister, or her and Mary, the middle sister. And I'm I'm reminded of the, the words in Mansfield Park when Austin is talking about sibling relationships. She's actually talking about Fanny and William, but she says... How wonderful is the sibling relationship and how worse than nothing in other cases. So when that sort of special bond doesn't exist, it's not even nothing. It's it's worse than nothing. When you yeah. have a sibling and you can't rely on them for emotional support, it's devastating. And what does Mary do? I mean, Mary, you know, nay Elliot, Mary Musgrove, say to Anne, the first time, first chance she gets, she announces to Anne, oh, Captain Wentworth was not very gallant by you, Anne. He said he would not have known you again. You were so altered. You know, like, what the hell? (laughs) Jeez. And I am embarrassed to admit that I forgot Emma had an older sister. Oh, yeah. Because they don't share. So um, he points out in the chapter that they don't actually exchange any dialogue (laughs) directed towards each other. Absolutely. She visits, I think, at Christmas with her husband, and they don't actually ever speak to each other. Yes. So I think part of the reason why Emma is the way she is 
is because it's just kind of her and her dad. Well, no, yes, yes, but yes. So Miss Taylor was there, Mrs. Weston, right? And but then I think she left too. Well, I right. I think Miss Taylor played the role in Austin of that very, very close female character. And when she does leave, that's the problem that Emma has, where she's so much in her own mind and she's so much yeah. in love with her own intellect that she doesn't have any outside perspective anymore. I mean, right. she does talk to Miss Taylor, but not in the same way. Well, that's and Emma not the whole plot, right? Yeah, Miss Taylor getting plot. married. And then yes. she's like, oh, Harriet, okay, I'm going to go off on this whole thing. And- yeah. Now I'm going to be the mother hen to somebody else and, and you know, raise her. And she doesn't have that moderating influence anymore. Well, she's like 16. I mean, Emma. Emma? Isn't she young? How old is she? Uh, 19. Come on. Yeah, she must be in like 20. Okay, like but 20. it's, okay, do you remember when you were 20? <laughs> yeah, I was an idiot. I'm still an idiot. I mean, oh, but it's like, <laughs> Emma, you need to calm yourself. Oh, yes. Yes. She's too calmed out. Yeah, but she doesn't have anyone to share those or have, she doesn't have a Jane. She doesn't have anyone to kind of temper right. her flights of fancy, if you will. Only Knightley. Knightley starts to sort of try to step in and play that role. Yeah, the departure. But that's super creepy. That's why it's kind of creepy that they end up together, right? <laughs> well, he does see himself as sort of a parent to her. You can't have it both ways. You can't be a big brother and the romantic interest. Oh, but as we discover in Emma, you can, and it's, it's very sexy. weird. <laughs> it's sexy. I don't know. I love this idea of the older man who's so knowledgeable and wise, wow. and you look up to him. It's a trope. It's a trope. And we don't have time in this podcast to unpack. I know. I know it. All right, you have it's okay. going on. I, for me, Emma is one of the less successful romantic plots, just because it's difficult for a modern reader to make that switch from a big brother to a romantic partner. I think that a contemporaneous reader in the 1800s would not have had this issue because it was a very paternalistic. Yes. uh, That was the way society was made. You know, women were supposed to be kind of counseled that way. But as a modern reader, it is difficult, I think, to make that 180 180 degree. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Switch from how you're supposed to view Mr. Knightley. Well, I think that's very perceptive, and I'm 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 right there with you. I, oh, I do well, think there's a, a throwback contingent of us who 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 still like the patriarchy and that and you know have a weird. It's ingrained, you know. Enough of the patriarchy is ingrained in us that we see that and we're sort of drawn to that in some way. But anyway, anyway, that's that's the princess in the tower thing, right? Yes, 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 and that well, exactly. And so the the sisters that we haven't yet talked about, um, here's another story of sisterly alienation in Mansfield Park with Julia and Mariah. Were they really rivals instead of They're not really partners. rivals, yes. And um, Fanny is really more of a sister in emotion to mm-hmm. Julia than even Mariah is because when Julia is a solitary sufferer, she's connected by Fanny's consciousness and Fanny has feelings for both of them. And then at the end, when Edmund comes to Portsmouth and picks Fanny up, what does he say to her? He says, my family, my, my Fanny, my only sister, my only comfort now. She's been promoted from cousin to sister because she's so emotionally invested, like a sibling would be, in these. You know what the uh, next step is. 
right? From sister to wife, <laughs> I guess. I know there's a lot of hand-waving at the end of Mansfield Park to be like, oh, yeah, and then Edmund fell in love with Fanny. And start, part of the thing that makes that hard is because we do, we do know that his feelings for her were so chaste and siblingly uh, towards her. But again, this is just kind of like a modern, we're looking at it the lens through a modern reader where that kind of thing is a little more difficult to come at mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. it would be for someone, I think, in like 1805. I would, I would agree with that too. I, I, yeah, um, it, it does feel a little bit hand wavy, although I do appreciate that Austin did that because I do need a happy ending people yeah i cannot read fanny about like fanny definitely I deserves, she deserves it she so deserves it so i don't want to derail you but i do want to just mention that the thing i think that blew my mind the most when i was reading this chapter was and i don't know why this never occurred to me we always think about how close jane and lizzie are but holy shit lydia and yes. kitty are over here having like the same type of closeness, but the dark side, if you will, where their closeness is all gossip and flirting and boys and feeding one another. That's there. exactly where I wanted to go. And okay, because I was just like, my brain was exploding thinking about them at night what yes. they would talk about. And it wouldn't be like these hard questions of morality and <laughs> until this moment, I never knew myself. No, they're just like sitting there talking about how hot the officers are. Oh my God, yes. And, and Mullen has so many phrases in this chapter to describe the malign confederacy. You know, yes, the, because the, the confederacy. Twisted, <laughs> the twisted nature, the twisted intimacy of some of the sisters in Austin's work and Kitty and Lydia are the primo example of yes. two sisters corrupting each other. Mm-hmm. Like the um, Steels too. Don't forget the, the Steels. Steels. Oh my God, the Steels. Lucy and Anne Steele have a particularly weird relationship because they're the only sort of duo that are mismatched in intellect, I guess I would say. Yeah, um, yeah, that's that, fair. And that like Kitty and Lydia are sort of both on the same level and Caroline and, and Louisa Hurst are sort of both on the same level. And yeah, then Lydia's Louisa, not like a criminal mastermind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're sort of on the same page. And then we get to Lucy and Anne Steele where they have this closeness and they have a very catty sort of young mm-hmm. childish sister relationship mm-hmm. where, you know, they're eavesdropping on each other. And one of my favorite- just standing outside the door. I yeah, love you know. Like you do. And and this becomes a plot point when Anne Steele is relating the conversation between Lucy Steele and Edward Ferris after they're engaged. And then it comes out, she's telling this to Eleanor, and Eleanor's like, how could you have heard all this? And Anne is like, oh, I was just listening out this side of the door. And then she justifies herself. She said, I'm sure Lucy would have done just the same by me for a year or two back, just a year or two back, mind you guys. Okay, back to the quote. When Martha Sharp and I had so many secrets together, she never made any bones of hiding in a closet or behind the chimney board uh, on, <laughs> on purpose to hear what we said. And that sort of childish sort of um, injury is, is almost evident there in her voice just from reading the words. Um, and so, yeah, and just the sharpness with which Lucy treats Anne and then how badly Lucy is bitten by Anne's mm-hmm. indiscretion. Uh, makes them a very unusual sisterly pair in that they're so mismatched and always, you know, thwarting each other. Although um, I don't know if how how much how many of you out there have read the Watsons. It's been a long time since I've read the Watsons. This is the uncompleted yes. story. 
It's an uncompleted fragment. It's very short. Um, she stopped writing it very early on. But it, it's long enough to make it clear that the central sort of issue is that the main character of the Watsons, her younger sister, has told lies about her to break off her love affair or love engagement with this other guy. Oh, dang. Um, or maybe it's not the main character, but somebody has def- one sister has definitely torpedoed the prospects of the other sister. And that's a plot point of the Watsons, too. So, yeah. So, I mean, Jane Austen had this deep sisterly relationship, but she also knew that there could be there could be very bad elements to that. And I don't know if she and Cassandra ever really if she ever felt that she and Cassandra were feeding off each other to be naughty. But there is that one letter that she wrote about the lady who delivered the stillborn child where she wrote to Cassandra and she was like, perhaps she had a fright. Perhaps she happened to look upon her husband unawares. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I always assumed that Cassandra burned their correspondence because yes jane was not catty but she was her typical kind of sarcastic she really skewer people yeah the the free um wit of her pen and her tongue that maybe cassandra knew was not meant to be cruel would be misinterpreted by posterity you know yeah um future readers that's a good segue into Caroline Bingley and Louisa Hurst. Oh my God. Mean Girls 101. <laughs> mean Girls 101, right? Right. Absolutely. And um, Mullen points out that when they're talking to each other and saying mean things about the Bennets, it has a sort of rehearsed quality. Like they both already have gotten on the same page and decided that they needed to convince Bingley, Charles Bingley and Darcy of the fact that the Bennets are country bumpkins. And so sometimes when they're talking about, you know, oh, I assume she must be an excellent walker. She did indeed, Louisa. I could hardly keep my countenance. It feels almost like they're doing a performance for the men. And I think one of the things I love, there's a little moment in the 1995 miniseries where they wait for, I think, for Darcy to come into the room and then yes. the, t- the the two characters look at each other, almost like giving each other a signal. And they're like, okay, let's do it. And then they start uh, shit talking about her. <laughs> Great. It's like, okay, now we'll just do what we discussed, right? And I think that it really captures the essence of that relationship really well. You know they've been sitting around thinking about ways they can talk about her in a negative light. Yeah, and sometimes it does happen spontaneously, like when they're talking about her low connections in front of the men. This is in front of the men. And Louisa says, well, it's such a shame that Jane has such low connections. Uh, her uncle, I believe, is an attorney in Cheapside. And Caroline Bingley says, that is capital. And then they both, oh, mm-hmm. they just get each bitches. other. They're just bitches. They, <laughs> but we are all we're all a little bit like that, you know. Yeah, but you know what? I don't take I don't like take nice people and try to destroy their lives. <laughs> okay. You I hope. Right. Okay. We're a little bit I better. I mean, I'm not unbiased, but I don't purposefully try to ruin nice people's lives. <laughs> so, if it yes. happens accidentally. I don't know. Oh, well. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, well. No, but they are. They are bitches. Come on. You can see no, it. Of course. Of course they are. Of course they are. Yeah. I, 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 I just, uh, my conscious conscience pricks at me not to put myself too high above them because that would be hubris. Oh, Kristen. 
Yeah. You just have another drink, sweetie. There's a word. There's it's the worst side of our all of our natures. Right? Well, I think that's human nature too. But they are particularly catty, They're particularly bad, and manipulative, and and they evil. are meant to be examples of that. Clearly, yes. we are. Um, you are not meant to root for Caroline Bingley. Oh, it's such a shame at the end of Pride and Prejudice when Lizzie and Darcy <laughs> gets together. <laughs> Because poor Caroline. I mean, you're not supposed to feel bad about it. Right, right, right. No, you're not. And, um, you know, those are sort of all of my big notes. Let me make sure I've got everything here. Oh, Louisa and Henrietta are an interesting duo in that Louisa is sort of the stronger personality, but she sort of uses her powers for good in getting Henrietta. in In persuasion. Louisa and Henrietta Musgrove. Thank you. Uh, to be more specific, but you know, Louisa has her char- her character celebrated for being less persuadable uh, by Wentworth himself, and that sort of does come out in Louisa trying to get Henrietta to reconcile with her sometime boyfriend Charles Hater. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hater's gonna hate. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just realized you say it out loud. So I was like, Hater, hating is bad. Just waiting. <laughs> I have to, now I've had too much wine to make this point whatever I was going to say but, uh, um, so Kristen uh, you have a sister I have a sister are you more of the Caroline Mrs. Hurst or are you more of the Jane Lizzie my sister and I really have um, are you an Eleanor Marianne where you're just both very different we're not we're none of these people. We are okay. very Christening. Okay. <laughs> we're very very straight. I mean, we had a weird childhood. So we had to move every 2 years, right? Cuz my dad was in the navy. And so it caused all kinds of development like I won't get into it, but we didn't really have any closeness at all. I would say when we were we were young. I mean, we we had a certain amount, but we weren't like ch- exchanging um, right. confidences. But now that we're grown up, we have this shared bond from having go- gone through these hardships that's really, really strong. So I think it's a little bit like Fanny and William, where sort of every time you come back together, you feel that feeling that's always there, where we've gone through so much together and yeah. we're always going to love each other, that kind of thing. I definitely see my brother and I as being like Fanny and William. I don't have a sister. Um, I only have a brother and with parents that were divorced and kind of like every week I'm dad, spending on time with mom, you know, you, you kind of, there's definitely a bond with the shared experience of this person gets it. Yeah. <laughs> and we were, we were always together in it. And then of course we are completely different people. <laughs> he, <laughs> he is an engineer. He is quiet. <laughs> he, <laughs> He is completely, he will introduce me as, oh, this is my sister, Margaret. She's just like me, except she's fun. Um, (laughs) He's the Eleanor and you're the Marianne. No, that is completely true. That is is 100% true. So, but I've never, I've always wondered what it would be like to have that kind of sister. Because there is something that comes from being both women, I think. Yes. Um, And I never had that. And so reading... These, there's all these different types of varied and nuanced sisterly relationships. It's always interesting to kind of just either if you have a sister to think about, well, who are we like? Or to try to project and think, if I had a sister, what would we be like together? I don't know. And I think that you can 
change, right? Oh, yeah. You can mm-hmm. end up as you can start, you can be a Kitty and a Lydia and end up a Jane and Lizzie. Yes. Yeah. I, I love to think of that actually. Like what if Lydia had been kept from further bad influences and then they both just actually grew up and got some sense just through the natural growing process. I wonder how they would have. Yeah. I mean, look at Marianne. Like there's a lot to be said for yes. time and maturity, right? Yeah. Um, Mullen actually says, this is a, a, a very much a side note. But the way Marianne talks after she recovers from her mm-hmm. illness at the very end of the novel is even different and more like yeah. Eleanor talks. Very fewer exclamation points. Yes, and balanced Johnsonian sentences such mm-hmm. as she once would have once scorned, says Mullen, which I thought I was I thought really that was funny. a really beautiful observation. Yes. That I wrote ha in the margin. <laughs> oh, I was more like, wow. Mm-hmm. Than ha, but yes, the sentiment is the same. <laughs> I appreciated it nonetheless. All right. I think. Well, I think coming through, there's definitely a sense of coming through her illness was very much a sobering experience for her. For um, sure. And she doesn't have the same kind of exuberance. No. Yes. Necessarily bad. No, it's not necessarily a bad thing. I think we're meant to see that she's come to a more adult way of thinking like a more Mm -hmm. mature mature let's say mature way of thinking Mm -hmm. yeah but with the with the negative sibling relationships especially strong in persuasion towards the end of austin's life she this is a more cynical novel i know that there were some of her siblings that austin was really really not enamored with um edward being one of them who uh didn't really provide them the financial support that could have. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if her frustration with some of her family members brought the alienation out in her, like writing a character who's yeah. alienating, alienated from her siblings. I, I wonder. Don't know. I would, I would caution against reading. I tend to be, I don't like to read. I don't think that you can really read a lot into an author's personal life through. It's very dangerous to try to read into authorship through character. Right. If that makes sense. Don't like pull an Arnie. Try. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah. So I think that Anne's alienation and even estrangement from her siblings has more to do with her need to be isolated as a character yeah. rather yes. than, I don't want to project anything of all. She did that. No, she herself. didn't do that. On, she didn't do it on purpose. No, yeah. maybe like from just a story her- perspective, Anne needs to be, feel very isolated. She does. And she does. question and whether you know she what, made the right choice. You know, what's interesting about that is Anne does get a sort of sister figure in Mrs. Smith. But she yes. can't. She can't be a full sister figure because she's self-motivated. Right. She can't bear the burden physically or mentally that Anne is going through, which I always thought was so so fascinating about that. But you're right. I, I completely agree, and I wouldn't. I would very much not put direct ties to that. I just wonder if that gave her some insight. Oh, maybe. But, um, I mean, she can speak about that type of relationship with authority. I you know, it's crazy. And I mean, one more testament to the you know, innumerable infinite testaments to how talented Jane Austen was. But can you imagine as an author writing two different characters with the same name, but they're two totally different people. Like you're writing one story and you like have this Elizabeth who's like this wonderful person. And that's who Elizabeth will always be in your mind. Mm -hmm. And then you turn around and write persuasion and Elizabeth is this cool a really cruel person and it's a totally different thing. Or like when you take Mary, 
I mean, there's Mary Crawford who has so many traits that we're supposed to, admi- you know, think are cool. And then there's Mary Musgrove and Mary Bennett who are total duds and <laughs> in various ways. Right. And then there's like Anne Elliot. Who you think, point. Yeah. There's Anne. There's always a good version of the character and then a bad version of the name. Right. So Louisa Musgrove is good, but Louisa Hurst is bad. Um, Anne uh, Elliot is, a, a, you know, a character we admire, yet Anne Steele is this really annoying character. And yeah. Jane, all the Janes, Jane Fairfax, yeah. Jane Bennett, you know, have the author's name, which, you know, well, I won't go into that because we know how Arnie feels about that. But <laughs> I mean, it, it blows my mind. And that's why, you know, that's why, you know, anytime a character's name is different, like Emma or like Marianne or like Frank Churchill, you know, it's for a reason because mm-hmm. all the names are recycled. And I just think that it's just so amazing. I need to come back. I, I really need to reread Persu- Persuasion. Is so, I don't, I don't like to use the word mature, but it's just so different from the other books. Yes, like I, so I feel different. like when you reach a certain age, Persuasion just speaks to you a lot more than some of the other ones because you have to have. And it's not like Anne Elliot was an old lady, but you almost have to have be able to look back at your own life and any regrets you might have of the road not taken. Yes. To really understand it. I know that's a tangent, but when we no, were just sitting but, here talking about it. And she was ill. And I mean, she was ill. That would form yeah. inform the way you write, form everything about your worldview. I mean, you will na- naturally be a little bit sadder, but anyway, anyway. Let's talk about games. Let's talk about games. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> now for now for something completely different. <laughs> These characters, like Regency, um, the Price is Right. <laughs> Regency, the Price. Come on down, Jane Bennett. Come on down. We're gonna. Oh my God! Now I'm just picturing like all these characters actually on the Price is Right, and Jane would be like, "Oh, I don't know, one dollar," and then she wins. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I always thought that that Mary never... Crawford is like whatever she said plus one. <laughs> <laughs> She's so cutthroat. I know Mary Crawford would win all of the Princess <laughs> games. But Mary Crawford, her whole life, she plays her whole life like it's a game with yeah. winning and losing and stakes. And um, perhaps this is an excellent segue into your Mansfield Park game discussion. Yes. Well, let's first of all, let's first of all say in games in general – um, card games, especially. I mean, Austin would have had all kinds of games in her life, and we know they did play a ton of games. Um, there are some letters where there are excerpts after Austin's mother died, where they're talking about introducing speculation into the family and how it was enjoyed as a game and how they're, they're trying to keep their spirits up. And that's what she did. I mean, there was no TV, and so everybody was just playing games. But in Austin, something interesting happens. So many, many characters who are dull or conversationally null, mm-hmm. as Mullen puts it, cards are their only refuge. These boring, boring people, like Lady Middleton, for example, yes, are just card players because they have nothing to say for themselves. Um, let me flip to the part where I had highlighted it about that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes, Lady Middleton is always one in playing cards, being incapable of conversation. And then in Emma, wait, why am I just blanking on where Emma lives, the village? Oh, um, oh my God. Highbury, Highbury. Okay. Yeah, I was like, how do we run a Jane Austen podcast and we can't even remember like basic trivia? 
Highbury. Highbury seems addicted to cards, as Mullen says. And and when you think about it, it's 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 actually they have their true. clubs, right? They the have their little club. competitive clubs. And when um, they do have the dance, and Mr. Knightley does not dance, he separates himself off. Emma says it's a shame to see him with the husbands, fathers, and whist players. And and Mullen makes a note that these characters are sort of the unsexed characters. They are the unsexually available characters and mm-hmm. he she has this feeling where that, that that's not where mr knightley belongs he's not past his prime yet and the men pretend to take an interest in the dancing just until their rubbers are made up for whist and and then there are then there are two characters especially who are characters who feel greatly and have so much conversation so much depth specifically depth of feeling and that is ann elliott and marianne dashwood and they both profess to dis- to dislike cards. In fact, Marianne detests cards, mm-hmm. and and Anne Elliot does as well. And I I always thought that um, Anne Elliot probably hated cards because there was it was so banal, and she was starved for meaningful conversation and starved for emotional connection. And that just does not happen at the card table when you're distracted by little transactions of a game. Right. Sorry. I'm no, a freight, I agree. I'm a freight train right now. You may have had something to say. I bulldoze over you because I have a million unconnected thoughts that I'm just about to spew out here about this amazing chapter. I don't have anything to say. Carry on. Okay. But, you know, you, you made the point that we need to talk about the big, uh, the big scene. The big scene from Mansfield Park. So... In Mansfield Park, they play speculation. <laughs> Lady Bertram plays, it, and, and, and it's a big scene. Um, and Mullen makes the point that in this scene, it's so masterful that almost every character, their personality and their character comes out in the way that they play. So they're all sitting around the card table representing themselves in miniature, and it's almost like the story in miniature, especially from Mary Crawford's point of view. Because what does Mary Crawford do? She wants to win the game, right? And she wants to win so much that she buys a card that allows her to win the game. Except for the game, it does not pay her what she paid to win it. Mm-hmm what she sacrificed to win it, which is exactly what happens in the story, right? She wants to win the game financially so badly that she sacrifices Edmund ultimately. And the reason, you know, and she's also making these little strategic moves in life. Oh, Tom's sick. Well, I'll hold my cards close to my chest and wait what happen- Wait to see what happens with Tom, whether he dies. So I can win the game and marry a rich man and also marry the man that I love. And it doesn't work out that way but she sees her whole life as a game. And so does Henry Crawford. I mean, Henry Crawford is so slick at playing games that what happens when they're all around this table is he's having a full on conversation about Thornton Lacey. And every once in a while, he'll say to Lady Bertram, who he's, who has no idea what's going on. Excuse me, your ladyship must not see your cards, right? She's learned, she doesn't know how to play speculation. He's managing her entire hand and he's having a full on conversation with, with Edmund about Thornton Lacey because he is just such so slick and so good at, at this game of life, really. Everything is a game. And in, in Mary's mind, you know, marriage is a game of speculation. And so what, what is Fanny doing all this time? Well, she is trying 
to make William win. She's That's not even so fanny. It's so fanny. It's so fanny, and we just love her for it. Every every do we love her for it? Uh, yeah, of course we do. Don't I know me- you do. I'm I'm sorry. I'm still rooting for Mary Crawford and all of this. I think at the end she goes too far with being like, well, maybe Tom will die. And it's like, whoa, pump the brakes there, honey. Let's slow your roll. But she's she's clearly the more interesting character, I think. Well, she is. But don't make me play you that clip from the Jane Austen book club where Sylvia goes nuts. And it's like, I love Fanny. And she, like, drops the plates in the sink. You can play whatever clip you want, Kristen. (laughs) But let me tell you something. Oh, go ahead. I also, okay, my vision of Mary Crawford, I 100% confess that my view of Mary Crawford is definitely informed by the not great movie adaptation that stars Hallie Atwell as Mary Crawford, because I think that she's just wonderful. You might know her um, as Peggy, uh, oh my God, from Captain, Peggy Carter, Agent Carter, from Marvel series and Captain America. I just adore her. And she plays Mary Crawford in the terrible Billy Piper adaptation that was um, on TV several years ago. But she's so likable. Is she? Yes. In that adaptation, is she likable? Yes, Kristen. She hmm. I wonder why I didn't like her. Maybe I just knew I was supposed to dislike her. You, okay, let's be real. You fucking love Mansfield Park, Kristen. <laughs> <laughs> Many people, including myself, um, found the book a little more difficult to get into. So I will say my mental picture of Mary Crawford is definitely Haley Atwell. Whether that's fair to the character, I don't know. But so it's very difficult for me not to, you know, equate the two with one, with each it's other. It's just so interesting because I did, of course, see that movie and I um, remember disliking her. But but I think it's because I knew the story and I knew she was supposed to be a bad guy. So I didn't yeah. give her a chance. So I was a, a, I was sort of poisoned. We need to rewatch her. that one. It's not that great, but we need to rewatch it. Maybe we could do a commentary for that in the future. And then we can like go on and on about how Billy Piper is terribly miscast. But it does have Haley Atwell. So there you go. And the thing about Fanny, to me, one of the many things that makes her so uh, relatable and valuable is something that Mullen says in this chapter. When Fanny, Fanny has no previous knowledge of the card game, but she immediately grasps its principles. I think it says in the book, it would it was impossible for her not to feel herself mistress of the rules within three minutes, right? Oh yeah, she's smart. She could be a card shark. She, she could be winning the game. If but she, she wanted see, to. But we see in her play, uh, this is a quote from Mullen, a paradox of her character distilled. She is an ingenue who quickly perceives the subtleties that the more worldly characters miss. In another, in another story, in another world, Mary Crawford would take Fanny under her wing, teach Fanny how to be like Mary. Oh my God, it would be just like Mean Girls, right? Fanny is like the Lindsay Lohan and she learns how to be a mean girl, but then she like uses her powers for good. It's like you said in our original podcast. I mean, the re- I-, I asked, why would Mary Crawford say all that stuff about Tom possibly dying? Oh, ha I've never bribed a physician in my life to Fanny. And you said, well, cool people see themselves as the mentors to lame people. Yeah. And that's what Mary's trying to do. She's like, I'm trying to, she's so 
funny. She knows that she's so funny, witty, et cetera, that she has no reason to pull back because she's only ever met with positive feedback about that. Right. And yeah. uh, Go ahead. No, I say, and the two sisters, sisters, hey, um, Lady Stornoway and Mrs. Fraser have uh, been corrupting her. They're another pair of toxic sisters. Mm-hmm. Toxic sisters. I like Toxic it. Sisters. Twisted sisters. <laughs> uh, I would think I, I would say that scene and the scene in Pride and Prejudice about accomplished ladies are probably, in my mind at least, they stand out as the gameplay, verbal play, showing your character, kind of like the clearest that Austin uses the gameplay as metaphor or symbolism. <laughs> Oh, I completely agree. And actually, I want to go on a tangent off of what Mullen has said in that I, when I was reading this chapter, thought to myself, okay, so here was the point. Here was the point I was trying to set up. So Austin says, on the one hand, card games are for the conversationally null. And on the other hand, people who feel deeply can't get into card games because they're too banal. But who are the two characters who actually do enjoy games and especially card games? One is Mary Crawford and the other is Elizabeth Bennett. They mm-hmm. are able to straddle, right? The um, everyday life, they're, perf- they're awesome conversationalists. They know how to move in parties and be the life of the party. And that's because they can enjoy games. They okay, can enjoy. Well, I have to tell you, this is, Bay and I have had this exact same conversation where we go to a month, and I, because I have to make everything about me, right? So I'll tell a story. Um, <laughs> please. Bay and I go to a monthly like game day at our friend's house where we all just play all these different types of board games and there there can be like up to 20 people there. You break off into all different gaming groups, but it's all about um, tabletop board game play. So I love these game days because the game is the excuse to socialize, right? Yeah. The game provides the reason for us all to come to the table and actually talk and have fun and interact. He loves the games because he wants to win. (laughs) (laughs) And he won't, he won't object to me saying this. We talk about this all the time. He's like, no, I want to win. And it's like, no, but the game is just, just enjoy the playing of the game. It's the interaction. It's the reason. No, I just want to (laughs) win. So he enjoys this one game called captain sonar. I don't know if anyone out there has ever heard of it. This is such a tangent. I'm so sorry. But basically you and your teammates are the crew of a submarine and you are trying to figure out where the other submarine is located and you're divided into two teams. There's no talking except to directionally steer your submarine and you're trying to listen to what the other team is saying to figure out where their submarine is so you can destroy it. (laughs) So this game discourages any kind of social interaction, right? Right. I hate this game. (laughs) I think it's totally boring. He loves it. It's super complicated mechanically. If you win, it's like a huge coup. It's a big victory. But for me, this defeats the entire purpose of gameplay. And I think that characters like Elizabeth Bennett and Mary Crawford feel the same way. The game is the doorway to the social interaction. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I actually hate games uh, because I feel like I can't get out of them when I'm ready to get out of them. Games that go on for a really long time, like that phase 10, where it's like 10 rounds of cards. 
And that's that's also pointed out in the chapter where games can be sort of like a, a kind of tyranny, a kind of social obligation that's imposed on you. Yeah. Like Lady Catherine um, and Miss, Mrs. Grant, I mean, not Mrs. Grant, uh, Mrs. Norris, trying to tell everybody where they need to go and who they need to play cards with. And there's a scene where actually, this is a tangent of, of what you said, that there's a scene where she tries to tell Tom that he needs to come play whist with Dr. Grant. And she says, well, well, well we were playing with half guineas, but you can play with half crowns, which I didn't up even realize. This. Up the stakes. She is, not only is she being rude, um, but she is playing to Tom's worst instinct, mm-hmm. his instinct, his love of gambling. Yeah. Which I never, she brings out the worst in those people in so many ways, but that is one of the things that I never picked up on that. And the fact where that um, she and Sir Thomas play an awesome hand of bridge against, or whist, I should say. Um, and- You've opened the door, Kristen. You've opened the door. Oh yeah. Yes. I have opened the door. We've got to tell you about bridge. We will continue your thought. No, um, where she's very sycophantic towards Sir Thomas and talks about their capital play or or is is happy about their capital play. Anyway, go ahead, Bridge. Okay, so we have to confess to our gentle listeners that Kristen and I, I find the discussions of whist very entertaining because Kristen and I in college, we with a group of friends were basically in a bridge club. And I'll say basically it was a bridge club. You made a t-shirt. She made a t-shirt. We had several t-shirts. Okay. But basically it was not your mama's bridge club because we would just sit around and get drunk and bid exorbitantly ridiculous (laughs) amounts. It was like win big or lose big, but you got to play big. And so I love hearing about people playing whist because whist is, I always say it's like bridge for dumb people. Um, Because... (laughs) The way bridge works is the play is much like whist. It's much like hearts or spades, the gameplay. But Trump always changes. You have to bid on what you want Trump to be. I believe in whist, it's a little more arbitrary. Like you flip over a card and that determines what whist is, I think is how it works. Um, It's not as like this kind of cutthroat bidding process. Um, But so I can very clearly picture characters sitting around a card table playing whist. Or Mr. Collins when he loses every point. Yeah. Oh, Mr. Collins. It's like, <laughs> oh, my God, it's too real. <laughs> That's like playing bridge with me. Maggie invited me to the bridge club, and then she was like, you're coming to bridge. And I just went because, as we talked about, she she w- was like a hurricane came into my life. And then I was like, I'm your friend. <laughs> it's so true. Um, I just force people to be friends with me. I am horrible at bridge. And no, you're not. No, you're not. You're really good. In fact, one of the quotes on the t-shirt was, he, he's on the take. <laughs> yeah, but because it was so rare that when someone said it, everybody laughed. <laughs> he, he, by the way, is my maiden name. Yeah, so that was what we would call her. Because if you have a friend whose last name is he, he, like, how can you not? No, really, it was so stupid. It was H-E-H-E. And to this day, it's my middle name. And I have to explain to people that it's not like uh, my, yeah, it's in my email. Anyway, yeah, yeah. It was We had, I don't know about you, Kristen, but I have so many fond memories from Bridge Club. And it can be very cutthroat. And we were not playing for money or anything like that. So it's very (laughs) clear to me, these pictures of these characters playing cards. 
Yeah. It's very crystal clear to me how the mechanics work and how the dynamic is when it's competitive. And it would have been to, to Austin's readers too. She was counting on that. And you know, the, the if I, if I may segue um, into backgammon for a second, Emma, the story of Emma, especially what she faces towards the end of the novel, when she realizes she may have, may have lost Mr. Knightley for good is she faces long winter evenings playing backgammon with her father, right? Mr. Woodhouse, right? That was what she would be doomed to spinsterhood. Doomed to do, doomed to spinsterhood. And so I understood when I read the book that this was going to be boring. I mean, I understood that backgammon was not a game that required incredible skill or anything. So I was telling my mom. So when I was reading this book, I was at the beach in Oregon with my mom and my extended family. And my mom was like, what are you reading? So I told her this, thing about backgammon. And I was like, oh, you know, because backgammon is doesn't require much thinking or strategy, that would be bad for Emma because she's such a clever woman. And my mom goes, no, backgammon requires a lot of strategy. And I'm like, what? And out of nowhere, in her hand, like a magician producing a bouquet of flowers, my mother raises from the, the ether a backgammon set in her hand. <laughs> and she said, I'm going to teach you how to play. You just wear it around in case of backgammon emergency. <laughs> I swear to God, it's true. And it was hers. She brought it to the beach just in <laughs> case, just in case anybody wanted to play backgammon. None of us have ever played or knew anything about it. But she did. So anyway, she's taught- my new party strategy. If I don't know anyone, I'll like my 20th high school reunion, which was a couple weeks ago. It was totally awkward. Does anybody want to play backgammon? <laughs> You, she held up the case. It's like a little briefcase. It's yeah, like a little candle. <laughs> but um, to Emma's credit, I think we're supposed to see when she's like, oh, I'll never marry. I'm going to be with my dad. I think we're supposed to see that as kind of a mark of her character, a positive mark of her character, how she loves her father. And while it may be tedious to her, she's willing. We are. And she we are him. supposed to see that. And one of the points that Mullen makes, and this is so fascinating, is that backgammon require, um, involves just enough human input. You know, it's chance. It's a game of chance, but also requires a little bit of strategy that if you're smart enough that Emma, Emma was probably helping her father win. I mean, you can definitely play a bit game of backgammon where you play as, as well as you can and you still lose because of the roll of the dice, that element of chance. That's why Mr. Woodhouse could sometimes win at it. And that's why it's the game that they played. But Mullen Mason, I want to know, I want to know, how did you do? Uh, uh, terribly. It's actually really hard, but yeah. <laughs> don't you feel like a jerk now? Yeah, I do. I did feel like a jerk for saying that it didn't require any strategy. It actually required a lot of strategy. And I, I had to think, but I also could see after the thousandth time you played it, how your favorite strategies would be already in your head and you wouldn't have to think about it. You just go to it. Right. Um, I just love this idea of your mom, like out being like, what was that? And then the, <laughs> out of the frame, just like producing the back end, like, well, it's a good thing I brought my friend to the beach. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I'm, I'm, my, my voice has gone so high-pitched that the dog is coming up to me like, are you okay? Hi, <laughs> Suki. Oh, Suki. So uh, that was back, Gavin. So 
Um, one of the other things, though, I forgot to mention, though, about Elizabeth Bennett. Um, I said that she liked cards, and she does. There, when uh, she actually can't join the card game at Netherfield because she suspects them to be playing high. Oh which yes, is, which you know, which she was poor, and they were playing for a lot of money, and that's when Carolyn Bingley makes her makes her ill natured. Um, ill-bred remark about oh, oh Elizabeth Bennett despises cards. She <laughs> she is she's a great, a great reader. reader. Takes no pleasure in anything else. When really, uh, then she goes later and stations herself. She is so much caught by what passed that she then goes just goes and watches their card game. Not unlike Maggie when Bay uh, expects you to watch him play Legends of Zelda. Oh my God, you guys. <laughs> So when we got engaged, he gave me an engagement ring and I wanted to give him an engagement gift as well. So I gave him a Nintendo Switch and I kind of shot myself in the foot because now all he does (laughs) is play Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. And it's a beautiful game. It's great. But yeah, And what are you doing? You're playing Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, aren't you? Yep. Yep. He just came in and showed me. He is playing it as we speak. And he's like, do you mind if I play this boss character and you can't watch me play? And I'm like, I think I'll survive. (laughs) Although I do actually really enjoy watching people play video games because I tend to suck at them. Uh, yeah, that's the only guy. He's way. nodding. He agrees. I do tend to suck at playing video games. Mario Kart is an overcooked or pretty much as a as video gamey as I get. Um, this um, is modern game. Man, gaming is so much more complicated now than it used to be, isn't it? It is. It is. And if I ever want to see past the first few seconds of level one, I have to watch Kevin play. I was thinking about this, actually, as I was reading this chapter about gaming in the book. How much would you have blown Jane Austen and her family's mind if you showed up with, like, Monopoly? Oh, I know. And they didn't have those kind of board games that we do. And I was just thinking about you could make so much money back then if you just came up with, like, a board game. Yeah, the first mass market. Yeah. Because there was no way to, like, mass market or mass produce. But if you could somehow do it, oh, man, you would just, like, revolutionize that society in terms of gaming. <laughs> you really could. I'd be like, oh, Jane, you definitely want to buy Boardwalk. It's a great investment. <laughs> Spend all your money. <laughs> They'd be like, what's free parking mean? Yeah. Don't, just ignore that. <laughs> it's not important. It only matters if I what's land What's the railroad? It. <laughs> this is like playing. This is like Monopoly rules playing with my brother. Oh, no. See, I can keep a bank account. And no matter what you land on, or no matter what I land on, I never have to pay out of it. <laughs> I swear to God, that was a that was a rule that he had. Anyway, um, it just their their games were even then were so limited. Like when speculation came around, it was like, oh my God, there's a new game. We all have to play it. Well, that's all I have, I think, to talk about in the world of gaming. Oh no, no, there's one more thing. There's one more thing that I thought was really, really perceptive. We were talking before about how Emma. Um, well, I should say that Emma is a book of many, many, many games, including the game that is proposed by Frank Churchill, where they all have to tell Emma Woodhouse one clever thing or two moderately clever things. Oh, and they love riddles, right? Like uh, that game, that that book is all about people playing games with each other. The plot turns so many times on games. And yes, uh, it was, you know, the game where Frank Churchill writes the word blunder to Jane Fairfax, um, the charade, right. The, or the riddle that, um, 
Emma misunderstands. She understands, but she misconstrues. Mm -hmm. And so Emma is in that, in that entire book playing games with herself, with other people. She sees life as a game. She even thinks of Jane Fairfax at one point as she is a riddle, quite a riddle. So her mind is always working at these, um, you know, at these riddles. I would say that Emma's greatest flaw is that she thinks the stakes are always low. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And she's willing to play with other people's futures. She doesn't understand that the kind of games that she like for, for her is a game could be potentially ruinous or can impact someone's life forever. Yeah. Like popping up Harriet Smith and getting Harriet Smith to think Mr. Elton could love her or all of these people could love her when that is just not going to happen. So true. Yes, I completely agree. She sees the stakes as low until it's almost too late. Um, It says Mrs. Elton incorporates herself into Highbury society, not by disdaining games, but by being shocked that there is no ice at the Highbury card parties. (laughs) And that's the last note that I have about games. What if we... What if I start a monthly gaming group and I call it Highbury Card Parties? <laughs> Do we have to play at Quadrille? When you come out here for my wedding, I'm going to make you play Speculation. Speculation. Okay, I'll be terrible at it. Okay, good. So will I. <laughs> <laughs> we'll both lose, but not for lack of playing. Yes, taking my last as a woman of spirit. Hopefully the game will pay me what I give to secure it. I mean, that's all what we hope to get out of life, right? Yeah, I think in that Mansfield Park episode, we did talk about the line, I'll stake my last like a woman of spirit. But I didn't say the next line, which is the best line of the whole scene, which is that- say it, woman. Oh, uh, that's the one. It's um, the game was hers and only did not pay her what she had given to secure it, which means, you know, she won the game- as she's, she, which is the, the plot at what cost? Yes, at what cost? Yes. A Pyrrhic victory. Yes. Man, I'm so depressed now. Oh, no. <laughs> well, you know, she kind of got what was coming to her. You know, she was yeah, all right. She just, so rude. She, she was all right. She just took a long time in choosing amongst the idle heir appearance um, and presumptive, you know, heirs that came to court her after that because she never saw Edmund's equal. Um, but, oh, uh, God, it's just, I wish that everyone knows listening to this podcast that clearly I love Austin, right? Or I wouldn't be spending all this time recording a podcast about her, but I wish Edmund was a little more, I don't know, a little more. (laughs) If you're going to make him the central hero and love interest of your book of two characters, the two main female characters, it would be nice if he, if you felt like he kind of deserved it. Austin did write romantic romances, but I don't think Mansfield Park is a romance. I think something else entirely is going on in Mansfield Park. Yeah, I think that you're right. And I'm okay with it because I love it. It's still so damn good. I mean, the women um, of, I, I think that the women of Mansfield Park are far more interesting. Even Henry Crawford is not as interesting as his sister, in my opinion. Yeah, Mary Crawford is the, the money character there. I um, am going to now, if we can sort of wrap up and move into the wheat sheaf for a second. Of course. It's time to go down the lane. Time to go down the lane, the wheat wheat sheaf. We didn't really get um, any emails that are super in-depth. There's one I want to talk about um, that we've been sitting on for a while, actually. Poor Colleen had had written us a very interesting question. But before I do that, I want to tell everybody, if you weren't aware... Our listener, or, you know, a longtime listener, Lona Manning, 
Uh, everybody's aware she wrote a Mansfield Park variation called A Contrary Wind, which we had a contest and we gave a copy away and it's an excellent book, highly recommended. Um, she has another one out now, which is a sequel to A Contrary Wind. It is called A Marriage of Attachment. Wow, and congratulations, office, Luna. What an yeah, accomplishment. No, it's an amazing accomplishment. I'm, I'm super happy for her. I did get to read it, and uh, it's awesome. And it has a little bit of persuasion going on. It's it's a Mansfield Park book. It has it's, you know It continues the stories of the Mansfield Park characters in very interesting ways. And I know that you're not an Edmund fan, uh, Maggie, so this book may actually make you happy. <laughs> well, I'm sure that Luna will expand on his character and make him much more interesting. Yeah, she and she has, and she has done so. But yeah, it's it's really good, highly recommended. A Marriage of Attachment, and it's getting really good reviews already. And um, so our other our other thing to talk about is that our listener Colleen, who is from Australia, let me pull up her email because she sent us back when we were talking about Pride and Prejudice. Sent us questions. I still haven't finished, by the way. Yeah, no, we still haven't finished. I think we're, I, I'm just like, once we finished it, then it's over. And, you know, Pride and Prejudice is so good. It's true. Well, I have to go back and listen to our our, for, our other two that we recorded this year because I don't even remember what we said. It was so long ago. Well, it was also you were working and you're in school. You're in summer break now, but it's probably like a fever dream. Yeah, the semester starts in another two weeks. So I know. I know. So Colleen says, a question hopefully you can discuss in the next P&P episode related to the gossip theme in the book. How do Mr. Collins and Lady Catherine hear the rumor about Lizzie and Darcy? All the other rumors in the book seem to have obvious origins, neighbors, servants, Wickham. And I was never sure about this one. Mr. Bennett assumes it is the good-natured gossiping Lucas's. And Lizzie supposed it because, or Lizzie thinks that people supposed it because they were good friends with the Bingley, Bingley and Jane who were just engaged. So everyone would be thinking about marriage. One wedding begets another. Lizzie thinks that the report went to Rosings from the Lucases. The gardeners, oh, I'm sure. the gardeners definitely suspected that they didn't have connections with Rosings. So it couldn't have come from then. Um, Charlotte is the only person that Colleen can think of as a source of the rumor, but Lizzie doesn't suspect Charlotte. I'm sure um, it's Mariah or Mr. Lu- uh, Sir Lucas. And yeah. his wife is not exactly the like nicest person either. So Lady Lucas. Yes. The I mean, Lucas she must have visited Charlotte. I'm sure Lady Lucas has visited Charlotte. The other thing is the Lucases, even though they weren't in Kent, um, Sir William and Mariah were both in Kent, first right. of all. So Mariah could have observed that. But even back in the day when Darcy was just prowling around Elizabeth and staring at her a lot – Sniffing around her, if you will. His behavior was remarked upon, and I think more perceptive people than Elizabeth probably put two and two together that he was attracted to her. Oh, yeah. So I I suspect that it could have come from the Lucases after all. I mean, look, clearly uh, Miss Bingley and Mrs. Hurst noticed because why would they go out of their way? Yes, 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 Margaret. Couldn't it have also been them because they knew that she would so... Uh, that uh, Lady Catherine would be so against it. Maybe that was like another part of their plan to torpedo it was to Ooh. turn her against it. Ooh. Ooh, interesting theory. Well, I think even if they didn't, just the fact that they were, they noticed Darcy's attraction to Elizabeth was enough to say that other people probably noticed it too, including yeah. the good-natured gossiping Luc- Lucas's. 
Just because Darcy didn't like fawn all over her, if you're going to sit in the room and stare at someone all night, people are going to notice your yeah. creeper behavior. <laughs> yeah. Well, excellent point. And well, thank you. yes. Thank you for the question, Colleen. Yes. Thank you for the question. And thanks to everybody else who's gotten in touch or left a that's Facebook. A, that's a sad Ouija tonight, though, Kristen. <laughs> well, we had oh, a lot yes. of um, fun Facebook posts. Yes, it's true. We did have a lot of continue to share posts, continue to write questions. It makes us so happy. No, we love hearing from you. And thank you all again for being such awesome listeners. We love you all. Do we have any other business to talk about? Do we have anything else to talk about, Kristen? No, I don't think so. Oh, that's a shame. Oh, no, it's coming <laughs> to an end. I know. I want to keep talking about Jane Austen. <laughs> <sighs> but I think we're out of time. So anyway, I guess it's time to say that we have delighted you long enough. Bye. Bye.